Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome H.G. Chisel to the show. H.G. Chisel is the founder and CEO of Advanced Energy Group, a stakeholder engagement platform designed for leaders and organizations committed to systemic change on energy, equity, and resilience by delivering collaborative near-term results. H.G. is also founder and managing director of Advanced Energy Agency, a certified minority-owned business enterprise consulting firm focused on clean energy transformation, equity, and resilience that specializes in public-private stakeholder facilitation for near-term results. H.G. has led over 85 challenges with 4,500-plus leaders and 450-plus speakers across the U.S., including Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Berlin. H.G., how are you doing today? Thank you, Raj. I'm doing well. I'm feeling inspired. I have a Georgia flag flying out on my front porch that I had bought several weeks ago, inspired by the presidential election and just my my thoughts around John Lewis and everything that has happened in Georgia. And today I get to fly it uh, very proudly. Now, are you located in Georgia? I'm not. I'm located about 20 minutes outside Philadelphia. And how's the weather up where you are? Uh, today, it's partly cloudy with some beautiful sun coming through. Any rain, snow? Uh, no, the snow, we had a big snow storm a couple of weeks ago, but that's subsided and there's just a f- little bit of snow left from that uh, snowstorm. <laughs> well, good for you. So HG, I'd like to open the show by asking the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Well, one thing when I look back that was helpful to the formation of my path, which has been a fairly scenic one, uh, was the time I spent my senior year of high school living in in Belgium. I lived in a little suburb of Liège as a senior in high school. I was an exchange student. And uh, that had a big impact on me in terms of just being challenging, thrown into no one speaking English around me and being the only American in a village. Um, And then it also had some interesting experiences for me in terms of different types of racism. Um, It's really not racism so much or as nationalism that I found that I experienced in Belgium versus being a brown black person in America where you're just considered black. But there, because I'm a brown person, I was taken to be Moroccan. And so that was really eye-opening and an important experience just to see how easy it is for us to see differences versus our shared humanity and how, how, you know, disappointing that can be and how much potential there really is for us to do better. You know, that really is interesting. I've, um, I don't want to say suffered with, but I've experienced similar 
being of Indian heritage, when I was in, I grew up in London, and when I was there, I was the brunt of a lot of, um, you know, packing bashing movements. I'm talking late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Then when I moved here to Dallas, let's just call it late 80s, early 90s, I very quickly became a Mexican, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. And then as the first Gulf War started, early 90s, I became a camel jockey. And subsequently, I've been called several things, almost everything but Indian. But to your point about a person sees your color automatically assumes, you know, whether it's the um, news du jour or whatever's kind of trending in that time, and they kind of position you or pigeonhole you to be that particular race. Yeah, that was a, it was an interesting experience. I went on to go spend my um, first year of college outside Stuttgart, Germany, the University of Maryland school there and there I was uh, taken to be Turkish. Um, so I got to see it from a couple of lenses as well. For those that are listening, you know, the reason that I think Moroccan in Belgium and then Turkish in Germany, because there's a lot of migration to those particular countries from those other countries. And so that's probably why, you know, like you said, Belgium, Belgium and France both you know, there's a great North Af- North African population there, and specifically in Germany, there's a lot of uh, t- Turkish people there too. Mm-hmm. So that is that is very interesting. Now, um, you know, doing some research, can you speak to your botched appendectomy? Oh right. Well, I was. Uh, it was winter break, in while I was at uh, my first year of school in Germany. Um, I had an appendectomy. I was on campus during winter break and uh, just a very few people on the campus and uh, just tremendous pain, didn't know what was happening. Ultimately, some friends took me to a hospital, whether it was Boblingen or Tublingen, some uh, town, and uh, they needed to operate on me for an appendectomy. And uh, it had been inflamed. It actually, the infection had got seeped out. And I didn't know that at the time they thought they had done the appendectomy well. And, uh, just was a very surreal experience being operated on in this very small town in Germany. Um, you know, a lot of glass vials versus what you'd find in, in the States for IV bags and all those things. Um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty lonely moment. Uh, and then to find out, you know, weeks or a month later that the operation actually didn't go well and the infection had spread into my intestines, which led to me needing to um, leave school and take an emergency trip back to Baltimore for an operation to rem- uh, to remove this abscess that had been created in my intestines from that botched appendectomy. Uh, it just put me on a really strange path through college of kind of seeing a lot of life from the sidelines trying to get better and back to being an 18-year-old or 19-year-old, but having just all these issues with my intestines and eating and all kinds of stuff um, was very helpful, I think, in some ways, one, to appreciate how fragile life is, how easy it is to take it for granted um, through that time when it was supposed to be, you know, the best times of your life, your moment of freedom, uh, you know, so I'm glad I've went through those times because I think it also helped open up or deepen my compassion for when I see others suffering because I know it's real and I know things can go worse versus get better. You know, that can definitely happen too when you get struck by an illness that things can get worse. 
So just I'm, I'm appreciative to have had that experience. Well, I for one am glad you made it through okay. Oh, thank you. So let's fast forward to Advanced Energy Group. Can you share with the audience a little bit about the organization and your role? Sure. Uh, Advanced Energy Group started in response. Um, I was inspired by seeing the leaders of cities, starting first with Chicago, really a gentleman, Chris Wheat, who was a chief sustainability officer of the time uh, when uh, Rahm Emanuel was just finishing up his term as mayor, decide as a team that they were going to commit to the Paris Climate Accord, even though all indications were Trump was going to pull out, that you know this was important and that Chicago wasn't backing down. Um, joining New York City with Bloomberg and others and saying, no, this is important. If we don't do this right, people are going to die and suffer. And we are going to commit to achieving these goals. We don't know how, but we're going to do it. And uh, that that level of courage and commitment and compassion really touched me in terms of what am I doing with my life professionally in terms of greatest benefit. And in talking with Chris, he shared with me that you know cities can make promises, set out targets, but they're not the ones who deliver on the targets. That only happens with extraordinary alignment and consensus, urgency and action. And in this case, regarding this topic, that can only happen when you have the alignment of enough diverse perspectives and stakeholders to actually make a difference, which is extremely difficult in any scenario. Now you apply the fact that you're talking about something that's so pervasive as clean energy transformation and is so urgent that you need to get something done within 10, 20 years. It looked like such a daunting task that required an an entire reset on the approach to stakeholder engagement that I wanted to take it on and find a way somehow to provide that platform of stakeholder engagement that could get the job done. And that was really the the inspiration to start working with a group of companies and leaders and say, how can we approach this differently to get to outcomes now? And it's evolved over um, the years. I started in 2016 in Chicago. By the end of 2019, I was doing this on a quarterly basis in Chicago, New York City, Boston, Washington, D.C., and then for a year I did San Francisco all in partnership with kind of the leads of sustainability from these cities uh, and the mayor's office there. And then also the kind of the key stakeholders regarding the utilities, uh, large energy users kept being attracted to this approach that I was working on and started sponsoring and supporting me to figure out how to do this. And that's really what Avance Energy Group, how Avance Energy Group grew and developed as a stakeholder engagement platform. So can you give an example of an event or a meeting? And then after that, you mentioned engagement, how you transfer, how you move from engagement to action? Yes. And and I think I probably just start with lessons learned along this path. One, I went into it with the principal and this likely came out of the experience I had for about two years working in a boutique global uh, leadership consulting firm that really focused on taking high potential executives at top tier um, teams within large global organizations and getting them to extraordinary outcomes. And 
they had their whole methodology on how they did this work and some principles which they used. And, and one was the idea that extraordinary leaders don't focus on leading people, they focus on leading extraordinary conversations. I love that. It made, it made a lot of sense to me. And so when I started Advanced Energy Group, I went in saying, we're not going to do this as an annual event. If we're really committed to achieving these goals, we need to be talking more often. We need to up our level of commitment to engagement and, and conversation. So we're going to do these on a quarterly basis. So that was the first commitment. By doing that, it creates the steep learning curve for us. Every quarter, we were back in the room trying to develop this extraordinary stakeholder platform. And that's where we just started having lessons after lessons on how to improve it, strengthen it. And the other key lesson learned was if you want to get a large group of leaders aligned to do something, you've got to make it competitive and engaging. So soon we realized we needed to create this as a three-part competition. So our stakeholder challenge is not just a, a meetup. It's actually a three-part competition where on a quarterly basis in four cities, invited leaders, typically four speakers, come to present what they feel is the critical obstacle standing in the way of making needed change as it relates to that particular quarterly topic to achieve the carbon and equity goals of that city. So we don't want to hear from speakers about their solutions. We want to know what they see are the most critical pain points that they can't solve without collaboration with others. And then we let the room vote and prioritize those obstacles so that we can focus our efforts on one to come up with a 12-month solution in the part two of the process, which is the breakout challenge, where teams break off from this group that's assembled to develop 12-month solutions that would most successfully overcome or address that identified important obstacle. And then the room votes again, to, so you get a, a winning solution to a winning problem, all within a span of when we did this in person, we could get it done by lunchtime. Um, now, when we're online, we do it over two days. We do the speaker challenge first day on a Wednesday for 90 minutes, and then the next day for two hours where we have the breakout room challenge. Uh, and the fun part is the breakout room challenge gets, we purposely mix up these groups that work together to come up with these solutions from a diversity lens, from a sector lens. Um, that's really a key component of this too, is making it ex inclusive and strategically diverse so that when you do get to alignment, it means something. It's not just everybody within your silo agreeing, oh yeah, that's really important, but you haven't talked to the person from a social equity lens on that issue. So make sure they're part of that and agree with you that it's important. So we really try to bring that in. And so by the end of the breakout room challenge, you've got teams that have worked 40 minutes to an hour together to present a solution that comes and represents a lot of different perspectives that must include a 12-month solution that's achievable, that would have an impact, and three quarterly milestones that lead up to that solution. And then the group votes. You can't vote for your own solution. And then you come together with this uh, winning solution to the problem. So in my mind, it sounds like a design thinking or perhaps even a charrette kind of exercise. Can you give an example of perhaps a topic that was brought by a stakeholder and how it was worked through? 
Sure. And, and I like the analogy. I mean, that was a large part of my life was architecture. And so design thinking charrettes, I think, is, informs this a lot. Um, just what I loved about architecture was it wasn't just about the vision. It's a, it was about having a vision that could be manifested into reality and not fall down and hurt people, but actually be something that could stand the test of time. Uh, so I think that informed a lot of this process. Uh, an example, well, I just got off a call <clears throat> with a task force that's been created for our work in Chicago. Um, so we take the year and we break it into four quarterly topics that all the cities address. So Q1, we cover critical infrastructure, equity, and resilience. Q2, buildings and construction. Q3, grid modernization. And Q4, mobility and transportation. And so we just finished all the cities on mobility and transportation. Um, most of them happened in December for Q4 2020. And for Chicago, um, you know, Chicago is really fascinating because people don't realize that Chicago is probably one of the pollution, air pollution epicenters in the United States. It's got some of the worst congestion, worst pollution, and it has some of the worst segregation, um, you know, very clear example of what redlining can do. And so what happens is there's all this congestion, trucking, et cetera, pollution that goes right into the brown and black neighborhoods and creates this tremendous disparity and life expectancy just within a mile or two uh, because they're on these transit corridors. So our speaker there, that one, um, his name is Dave Schaller and he's with NAFKI. And NAFKI is the National Association of Freight. Um, I think it's around clean energy. That's not exactly right. I'll find the exact one for you. But he presented the need to create a roadmap for trucking in Chicago to electrify and why it would be so important. Because this roadmap doesn't exist, these fleet operators are not understanding the value of doing this from a financial standpoint, but also just from a good stewardship standpoint for Chicago and then all the other stakeholders in Chicago that are committed to equity and so on in Chicago are not seeing that correlation either. So they don't know how to prioritize their focus to address such an important issue. Um, and so he won. And then afterwards, he was part of one of the breakout rooms. And the exciting thing there is he was part of a breakout room that included Samantha Bingham. And Samantha Bingham, she's, she's a person with the mayor's office in Chicago. She's the clean transportation program director for Chicago Department of Transportation. She was on his in his breakout room. And ultimately, their team developed a proposed solution, which was to develop this, this whole process to identify and get a pilot going uh, with fleets that really were most active in these red zones where you had the highest prevalence of air pollution uh, or in and around Chicago, get them into some programs to find ways to electrify their fleets. And it really spoke to the entire group. They selected that solution. And I'm just looking at the number of task force members involved on this task force. We've got one, two, three, over a dozen, including leaders from the Environmental Defense Fund, uh, Chicago Department of Transportation, Center for Neighborhood and Technology, Black and Veatch, 
just a great group, a cross-section of leaders that understand that this approach would make a big, important impact, and they're willing to commit their time and hold themselves accountable within 12 months by the time we get back to that quarter that they're going to present what they were able to accomplish. So they actually go out and take action? Oh, yeah. They, they take action, and they know that every quarter they have to present their milestone update to the group for vote on whether or not they did what they said they were going to do. And how do you get members of the community or represent to represent the community? It's a good question. The good thing is the all our events are by invitation only, so we really try not to make try to make sure it never gets skewed to be a trade association, but really a reflection of the community. So one often the task forces that are created have that level of representation inherent to the group. So for instance, we've got on the call today, this task force call, we had um, CMAP, which is an organization that very much looks at equity and how do you align transportation in Chicago in a way that's equitable. Uh, Environmental Defense Fund was on the call as well. So they help make sure there's representation and then from there, we can go working with the, the mayor's office of Chicago, look for what organizations, you know, civic organizations relate to wherever ultimately this group is going to try to focus their efforts first in creating some type of electrification program with fleets for a particular neighborhood. Now, you mentioned that obviously they used to be in-person events. Now they're online. How has the transition to online changed what you do with advanced energy? At first, I was concerned because there was so much working with us being in person. We'd have this great dinner the night before, and then the next day we would have our half-day session, people working together at roundtables and so on. What's been exciting about understanding how to do this online is our reach just expanded exponentially. Um, and our ability to get speakers interested who have expressed interest in the past but were not able to make time on their calendar, we're now able to say, I want to I be a speaker challenger. For instance, we had Joe Dominguez, CEO of ComEd, really interested to be a speaker challenger. And next week, we've got CEO of Pepco, Dave Velasquez, uh, very interested to be a speaker challenger. And they can because now they can get online and they can get right into this discussion. and it works for them. So that's been great. Um, we've learned that we need to take our programming and break it across two days. So we've got a 90 minute session on the first day and then a two hour session on the second day. Um, what's been exciting to me is that our ability to deliver outcomes and the outcomes that we grade ourselves in terms of effectiveness of this approach to stakeholder engagement is ultimate one is how many people volunteer for the third part of this competition, which is the task force challenge. That is when the audience listens and sees the winning solution. And I ask them, how many of you are willing to volunteer to hold yourselves accountable and be a part of this group for a year to deliver this solution? And the number of hands that go up at that moment determines how successful this process was, in my opinion. And last year we had 160 leaders um, volunteer. And a lot of those happen from our online events. So I'm very excited about that as a, a kind of a positive experience about going online. I think this also speaks to the vision 
of our stakeholder engagement platform being scalable. Um, you know, we get a lot of interest in or, or remarks from people saying, when are you going to come to Texas? This this model or approach would work so well for Dallas or Houston or Austin. Um, and I can't do that in person easily right now in terms of scale. But online, there's a whole new avenue that opens up for the ability to do that and, and to deliver effectively outcomes that can be very valuable to these locations. That's great to hear. You know, I'm going to switch gears here and get to the crux of our conversation. It's the why behind what you do. You know, obviously you have a deep professional background. Why did you decide to start Advanced Energy Group? What motivates you? What moves you? I'm moved by the potential of collaboration and the lack of it. I think so many of the, so many of the reasons we don't have effective collaboration are due to just our short-sightedness on things that we can overcome. Namely, one, for instance, is the color of one's skin should have no bearing on the ability to collaborate. But we get caught in these constructs that help us, you know, that unfortunately keep us from seeing our shared humanity. And it's such a dis it's a disservice, but also it's a vulnerability to our ability to act together and solve big problems that affect millions of people. And so I, that just inspires me because I feel with the right understanding, once you fix that problem, so much can happen so quickly and you can really tap and engage the collective brilliance of all these people who are engaged on these issues. So I guess I, that inspires me because I feel if I can just open that up, so much can happen so quickly. Um, so I think that's a big one for me. And I think stakeholder engagement is a term that hasn't had its true due in terms of a being living up to its potential. And I want to change that. So it sounds like to me that during your events, you've got almost like a microcosm of demographics. Would that be correct? That's always the goal. Yeah. How have you seen that interaction play out? You know, it's very easy to read the headlines and see the divisions taking place right now. And you mentioned you know, right now, your part of your why is the ability to bring people together to for, for restoring the planet and social justice. But how have you seen now initially, like, is there a moment of or a short period of time where it's this discomfort and then that kind of breaks in or breaks through to eventually work getting done? At times, yes. Uh, because I think we like to think we're comfortable with hearing different perspectives and opinions, but we're often just hearing our perspectives and opinions that fit within our filter. And so we're not really exposed to the different perspectives we think we are. Um, and so there are moments where that can happen, but those often become the moments that are most special to people who are a part of it because something really breaks down in that moment and you see things more clearly. So I think I see my role is to create an environment that feels safe and authentically inclusive for real issues to get on the table. Um, I think that's a particular opportunity that I have as a brown black person to create that type of space, safe space so that 
voices aren't being suppressed when you're trying to deal about issues that really relate to the future of people's families and lives, you've got an environment where you can say what you need to say so people understand when trying to come up with a solution or prioritize a problem. I think that's really important uh, to have an environment like that. You know, it's a very interesting observation. As you were speaking, I was thinking that most people are exposed to opinions that don't align with theirs through a perhaps a media headline or through a soundbite. Very rarely do they actually have the opportunity to sit in a room or perhaps on a Zoom call with an individual that actually says those things out loud where they have to actually mentally and emotionally digest them as they're talking or as they're actually going through the process. Yes. And, you know, I agree. Uh, I try to make sure uh, this idea of 360 dialogue and engagement is that's the spirit I want these stakeholder meetings to have uh, so that it's never a power center to the discussion. It really feels like a 360 dialogue or approach, almost like an honor seminar or, or, you know, if you really are having an opportunity to dig into it from different angles and appreciate different opinions, all based on the backdrop of we all care about solving this issue and we know we can't waste time not doing it now. That being the backdrop to the discussion. I love that idea. HG, I appreciate you sharing your why, but it's my job as an interviewer to dig a little bit deeper. So can you tell me why you feel stakeholder engagement is so important? Yes, because without it, we're just not going to make it. Um, if you were to ask most in an honest moment, you know, if you were to say to them, do you think we're doing enough fast enough to meet these pledges and equity commitments? I think you'll find that the true answer is no. I mean, if you look at just what the Black Lives Movement, George Floyd, all of that demonstrates too little, too slow. Climate commitments, decarbonization, too little, too slow. And what's underneath all of that, to me, is that our level of stakeholder engagement on this issue that we all are stakeholders in is pathetically low. Um, and then I compare that against professional sports. And it just gets me so uh, fired up in a good way. And also in a, in a, just a aggravation, like soccer has over a billion fans, NFL top five teams, maybe 10 teams, 50 million fans, the annual revenue of NFL plus soccer in 2017 was $90 billion in revenue. And it's just look at that at level of engagement from the players to the from the players, the coaches, the fans, the sponsors, all there, just teeming with engagement while the planet is just burning to a crisp and we can't get basic social equity issues right. I want to take some of that magic, even if I got a fraction of a fraction of that and could apply it to creating stakeholder engagement as a professional sport. I think we would make such great progress that we're not going to make unless we figure it out that way. That, that to me is my big rocket fuel for what I see. I'm, I see bright lights, big arenas, you know, figuratively, but that's what I see stakeholder engagement can be because this is something we really do need to win at. This is what we need to win at. This is what matters most to win at. And we're not playing like that. You know, we're not playing 
as if it's the Super Bowl, the World Cup. And that's what I want to spend my time on this, figuring out how to do. And once I figure it out, creating a lot of teams out there doing it um, so that we can have some massive impact and change. I love the idea of stakeholder engagement as a team sport. Speaking of creating magic, what have you learned so far on your journey about yourself? About myself? Um, I am, I'm a pretty tenacious optimist. Uh, you know, this has been a journey. I mean, any journey of a CEO founder will, will probably say this, but you just got to hold on to the vision and enjoy the ups and downs because that's why you signed up to be at the front seat of the roller coaster. Um, and I, I find that, you know, I, I am persistent. I'm very optimistic. I've learned, I've learned the areas that I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable being a moderator and facilitator and really seeding the conversation to others, creating the environment for productive conversations is what I like versus necessarily always being the one leading that. I don't need to lead that conversation, but I feel a responsibility to create the best environment for leaders who inspire me to make the most of their time and commitment by being in an environment where they can do that. That, that I feel is my responsibility. I, 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 I welcome taking that responsibility on. So I think currently right now I'm seeing that in order to great, fulfill more on this vision of stakeholder engagement as a professional team sport, I'm going to need to put on the ESPN hat sometimes and really be a cheerleader for my task forces that are getting created every quarter and my speaker challengers and, and, and do some talk shows and those type of things, which wouldn't be my natural go-to, but I can see it's critical to be able to open up that space and get more excitement around this. I like the idea of being a cheerleader and setting the environment. So speaking of setting the environment, it's 2030. What does Go Advanced Energy look like? What do you think or what do you see it has accomplished? Oh, by 2030, we are the premier stakeholder engagement league. Uh, North America is up and running by 2030. We're in 24 to 48 cities. Um, this is the quarterly stakeholder engagement game to be in. Um, we're, we're partnered up with all the cities that are making public commitments and they know if they want promise delivery, they get on board with being a AEG stakeholder city. Uh, that's happening. Um, partnered up with DOE, the energy labs, you know, helping federal vision on energy transformation happen on the front lines. That's what we do. Our sponsorship base is so exciting because they see that there's really nothing that comes close to the level of engagement that this type of stakeholder paradigm sets up, delivers. And we're talking now with partnerships with the UN on how do we do this in other parts of the world as well. And um, it's, got, it's got roots and it's growing on its own. And I'm really enjoying seeing um, the fruit bear in terms of just equity and energy transformation happen faster, smarter, more efficiently, uh, and just enjoying everyone's sense of how rewarding it is to get things done when you say you're going to do them. I love that idea of getting things done when you say you're going to do them. Sounds like a beautiful vision. Last question is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? 
recently, I think the the thing for me is has been always taking time to appreciate how limited the time we have is because it's such a great, uh, you know, I think it's Viktor Frankl says, imminent hanging strengthens a man's wit or sharpens a man's wit. Just embracing our impermanence, there's a lot of freedom in doing that in terms of letting things fall or settle that are distracting you from what you really are going to be most proud that you accomplish with this brief gift that you have called life. And if you don't have a practice for embracing impermanence, it's so easy to forget that and think that this goes on and you get to call the shots of when it ends. And I think that to me always helps center me when I really get in touch with, with impermanence and the gift of life. You know, Viktor Frankl had, um, some very interesting, uh, quotes in his book. I'm a big fan of his, mm. especially the idea of, you know, viewing the world. You make a decision of how you view the world. And I've really come to enjoy how you're viewing the world, especially from this team player concept. I think it's, um, and I think, I guess to a certain extent, we're all playing for the same prize. Yeah. It's amazing that that's, imagine when that awareness sinks in. It's like, oh, wait a minute, we're all on the same team, humanity, and we're all playing for the same home, our planet. It's like when those things start to lock in, we'll we'll naturally want to spend more time leveraging our strengths and co- our collective strengths and understandings to, to do that. I agree, and I look forward to playing beside you on this journey. Oh, great to have you and looking forward to seeing you on the field. Thank you, H.G., I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Raj. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.